Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So we're continuing this series on uh, Brian McLaren's book, Do I Stay Christian? And a couple weeks ago, we asked you to think about some big questions having to do with the church. And some of you uh, responded later via email. You're like, hey, I'm an introvert. I'm not gonna be put on the spot. Thank you. And some of you were okay with being put on the spot. So that's how we're gonna start, is part one of your thoughts. So this week it's, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? I don't know how to be anything else, actually. And I think that it's, even in ups and downs, it's not let me down. So far, I've been really blessed by that. I think the main reason is because of my background and my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, uh, everyone in the family was a Lutheran. I have been a Christian all my life, ever since I was very baptized. I know Christian, being a Christian was always something that I did as a family. We always went to church. We always had um, different things that kept me in church. And I felt that that was part of being my growing up and being, just being who I am. I think probably because I grew up in the church, um, I've been doing it all of my life. Um, I stay here for community. I think it's really important to have a group of people that you can be with and grow with and study with, and that's why I continue to do it. I think that we all need to learn how to forgive each other. We all need to be forgiven, and we all need to be kind and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And coming to church and practicing Christian values uh, helps me to think about that and do that. Uh, for me, it's a, re a response to truth because if God is indeed God, uh, God is our creator, and if indeed Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God and came into the world to bring me salvation, if that's real, if that's true, then my Christianity is basically my response to that truth. I found that Jesus Christ keeps me leveled, he's always there to help me, and I rely on him to help me out through different situations without him. I would be very lost. I think truth is that I may not have been a practicing Christian. Most of my life, I, uh, I have been around people and places that uh, grasp a hold of the spirit with clenched fists. And now I'm around the people in a place that the Spirit is on open hands, and that's the difference. I think that uh, very often as humans, we get stuck in our heads and think, overthink a lot, and um, Christianity and the church kind of grounds us in our hearts, gets, gets us back to a place of love. 
So maybe something that was said resonates with you. Maybe you have a completely different reason that brings you to church. But if you've never thought about it, I would encourage you to do so. Why are you a Christian? What brings you here? I think, for one, it's a good thing to be intentional about what we're doing, not just going through the motions, but also it's probably a valuable thing to have a response for others. This is a time right now where a lot of people are talking about the decline of the church and why people are leaving, why people are staying, and so it might come up. It's probably a good idea to think about your answer. So our reading for today is from Matthew chapter 24. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Now this passage always makes me laugh. And it probably shouldn't, it's not meant to be a funny passage, but it makes me laugh, and here's why. It is often used as this apocalyptic, fearful kind of text. And we hear that part about wars and famines and earthquakes and destruction, and we think, okay, this is talking about doomsday. And Jesus is predicting the end of the world where God comes and destroys everything because God's kind of given up and eh, this isn't really working out. Retreat back to heaven. And this is why I laugh at that. When you look at what Jesus is actually saying, it is the exact opposite of that. It's the exact opposite. He's not giving a doomsday prediction at all. The disciples, that's what they're thinking. Jesus is trying to correct them because they are missing the point. So this encounter starts with Jesus and the disciples out by the temple and it says that the disciples point out something about the temple building to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what that is, but we can have a pretty good guess because the temple for its day was a massive, really impressive building. It stood out in the land and uh, King Herod poured a lot of money into this massive expansion project in the temple. It was really this amazing sight to behold. And it also had all this history tied to it, right? This temple had been around for a while, and then the first temple before that. And so, for me, I think it would be something like for us going to the Vatican and seeing St. Peter's Basilica. And if you've ever been there, I mean, just the crowds alone are kind of a spectacle. But then the scale and the artistry of everything there is incredible. I've had the chance to go there twice. The first time was in high school. And I remember when I kind of walked into this main section and the crowd is all moving back and forth and taking pictures and I just stopped for a while and looked up and couldn't look down. I just had this feeling like there's nothing that I've seen that is like this. I was just in awe by it. 
Now, if I'm honest, there are also some complicated feelings about being in the Vatican. I mean, St. Peter's, you think of where did the money come from to create that? Well, it came from indulgences, which weren't the best part of our church history, right? The church has a complicated history, but in spite of all that, I think you can't help if you go there to feel in awe. You can't help but be impressed by what's around you. And so for the disciples, I imagine it would have been the same kind of experience going to the temple. And so just picture them, they point something out to Jesus, they say, Jesus, look at that. Every time I come here, I just have to stop for a minute and admire this. And it just reminds me of all of our ancestors and all of our people who come to this place and experience God and community and Jesus. It's just an incredible place, isn't it? And Jesus, like, throws some cold water in their face. He snaps them out of this. He says, oh, you're admiring the temple buildings. Well, guess what? There will be a, come a time where this will be completely gone. The temple will be destroyed. I'm talking not one stone will be left upon another one. Now, what we know from history is that's exactly what ends up happening. About 40 years after this conversation, there was this Jewish revolt. They were trying to gain their independence and kick out the Romans, and they failed. The Romans came in and slaughtered the rebels, and they destroyed the temple and plundered the holy artifacts in the year 70, about 40 years after this. Now, that would be a very traumatic event for the Jewish people and for the Christians that were tied to Judaism early on, but it was not the end of the world. But for the disciples, they just can't imagine that. I mean, I kind of picture it like imagine going to the Vatican or maybe in a secular context going to Washington, D.C., and someone says, look at all these monuments and buildings. They will be nothing but dust and ash. You might think, are you talking about nuclear war? That's the only way that could happen. And so they think, okay, if this is going to be destroyed, surely you're talking about the end of the world. And so then, when they have some more private time with Jesus, they say, okay, you dropped this bomb on us, you gotta give us a little more details. When is it gonna happen? Tell me what signs we can look for that'll signal that the end is coming. But look at what Jesus says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are what? Not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. There will be wars, the temple will be destroyed, and that does not mean the world is coming to an end. Do not be alarmed by this. And Jesus knows that this isn't the only catastrophe that's going to take place. If you think about it, really in every generation there is some event, some kind of catastrophic event that makes some people wonder if this is it, if the world is coming to an end. So look at what Jesus says next. For a nation will rise against nation, these empires that you think will last forever, no, they will rise and fall. Kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. It's all just like labor pains when something new and something different is coming into the world. It's not the end. You see, when there are these big changes, when there are these seismic shifts in our world, things change and evolve, and new systems are created, but that process of change is always really painful. Because the structures in power, they try to hold on to that power as long as they 
can. They try and stop the progress and maintain things the way that they are and fight back. And just like labor can feel like you're dying, but you're not. It is part of this process of giving birth to something new. Here's how Brian McLaren describes this passage. He says, I suggest that Jesus wasn't talking as a fortune teller here. Rather, he was speaking as a wise man who understood how systems work. When you challenge things and when things are about to change, the system is gonna fight back first. It's inevitable. So what if we took kind of a step back right now and we looked at things like the state of the church in the world, we looked at things like the state of democracy, of human rights, and instead of looking at them in terms of is it in decline or is it growing, what if it's all part of this process of death and resurrection, the cycle? See, because the progress, the evolution, it can only come out of these labor pains that feel like you're dying first. So the part of McLaren's book that was most insightful for me was chapter 11. It was the first in the section of yes. So do I stay Christian? The first section was no, here are the reasons not to. The second section were yes, here are the reasons to stay Christian. And in this section, he talks about all these different times throughout the history of the church where things look really bad where the church has clearly, from this larger view, taken the wrong turn. They have gone the wrong direction. And in each of these times, there are also these counter-movements. There are also these people continuing to move the faith forward. First one he mentions is Constantine. Now, when Constantine was the Roman emperor, he started to turn Christianity into the imperial religion and it became tied with the power of the state. The legend of Constantine's conversion is a really interesting one. The legend goes that he had this vision of Christ and then also this Cairo in the sky. That's the first two letters of Christ in Greek, the Cairo. And in his vision, Constantine said that Jesus said to him, in this name, you will conquer. And so after this, Constantine started to put the name, the symbol of Christ on his banners and on the shields of the soldiers as they went out into battle, killing and conquering their enemies in the name of Jesus. Now this is the same Jesus who was killed by the Roman Empire. The same Jesus who said that those who live by the sword die by the sword. This is the same Jesus who taught this strict non-violence and then he demonstrated that by going willingly to the cross, forgiving his enemies instead of trying to destroy them. So Constantine took this name that had meant peace and love and forgiveness and he twisted it into this symbol of conquest and violence. Now, most of the bishops of the church at the time, they went along with Constantine because he offered them this power and protection of joining the empire, and they said, sure. So for Christians who were still faithful to the teaching of Jesus, this had to be one of those times where it felt like, let's give up on this thing. It's time to walk away from the church. But at that same time, 
there were these groups of Christians launching these counter-imperial movements, the monastic movements. It was the desert fathers and mothers. They started these monastic movements during this time period to show the world it was possible to reject that power and privilege and still stay true to the teachings of Jesus. Now fast forward a few centuries to the time of the Crusades, which was just this long, awful period of history for Christianity and all of these Christian soldiers called to battle for the Holy Land and what was accomplished in all that? A whole lot of death and destruction in the name of God and that's about it. But at that same time, there were also people coming about like Hildegard and like St. Francis who taught the peace and love of Christ. Now most of us, if you've heard of St. Francis, you think, oh, he's the animal guy and he also loved the poor. Well, yes, that's true, but there was also, he was about, he was around during the Third Crusade, and so he also walked unarmed into the Holy Land, not as a soldier, but as a negotiator for peace. He went unarmed into the camp of the Sultan to try to negotiate this interfaith peace. Then during the Spanish Inquisition, which was this time of torture, time of imprisonment and time of execution that the church was doing to anyone who wasn't falling in line. There was also this movement of the Christian mystics coming about like Meister Eckhart and Julian of Norwich and then later Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, all these new creative voices coming about in the midst of that mess. And then there's the time that Lutherans are probably more familiar with, the Reformation. It was this time where the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church had become really corrupt and they were exploiting people for money and then also just instilling guilt instead of grace on people. And the reformers came along and they did a whole lot of good and then later the Roman Catholic Church, they had their own reform move eventually. But it also wasn't long before those Protestants started to turn to violence too and they started to fight amongst each other, to fight with the Catholics but even then, there were people like the Anabaptist who stuck to the non-violent teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, who stayed true to it. And then there was, during the Enlightenment, there were the Christian humanists who advocated for democracy and for human rights. And in our country's history, the church, a lot of it has supported slavery, supported segregation, and at the same time, there have been these other Christian movements that have been fighting for freedom and equality and justice. On and on, this always happens. Every time the church seems to have lost its way, there are also these other movements working for the good. So has Christianity lost its way today? Yeah, probably. Just like every other time throughout history that it has. And there have always been these counter movements of people building up the kingdom of God in spite of the mess around us. So maybe our job isn't to fix the church as a whole. Because if you look throughout history, it hasn't happened. Maybe our job isn't to fix the church. Maybe our job is to find the kingdom of God right where we are and to be a part of it. So to use Jesus' image of giving birth, 
I think our role is more like midwives. Like we see all this pain around us. We see decline and despair and apathy. Yes, all of that's happening. And we are called to find the new life that is coming into the world and then nurture that hope, to keep it alive so that it continue to grow. So you know what? It, it may seem like the church is in decline right now, that the world is in this downward trajectory, but remember the words of Jesus. Do not be alarmed. This is not the end. This is only the beginning of the birth pang. Something new and good is coming in the world. Do you want to be a part of it? 